Welcome to the Bridge to God's Word podcast with Carla Unseth, a linguistic consultant for missionaries working in Bible translation. We invite you to visit us at www.bridgetogodsword.org to learn more about Carla's ministry. Now, here's linguistic consultant Carla Unseth. This is Carla Unseth with Building a Bridge to God's Word. Thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. We are continuing through the book of Titus as we are considering different translation issues in Titus. So like I've said before, the type of things that you think about in translation is often different than the type of things you would think about when you're studying the Bible for your own personal devotion or application. But... When you are studying the Bible for translation, a lot of times those personal application things kind of come up also. They they follow from the translation issues as well. But I wanted to look specifically for you, give you a peek into translation by talking about translation issues. So last time we looked at Titus chapter 1 verses 10 through 16, which ended on a pretty serious note as it talks about God calling people who profess to know him but deny him by their works. He calls them detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So that was a little bit of a low note, but here on this podcast, we're going to look at chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, and this moves a little bit more positively. It's looking at what Christian relationships should look like, what Christian people should act like. So before we get into that, I wanted to talk also about a translation principle. So last time we talked about implicit versus explicit information. So sometimes information is implicit in the text, which means the author doesn't outright state it in the text, but the original audience would have understood that information because they have some kind of shared context. But that does mean that when you're translating a text, your new audience might not know that implicit information. So sometimes you have to make it explicit, and that means that it's outright stated. It's something that we just actually say. But a translator can't just add whatever they want or even however much they want. There are guidelines for when you state implicit information. So the first guideline is that only information that's already implicit in the text may be made explicit. This seems to make sense, but it means that you can't add new information or explanatory information. So, for example, in Titus, we talked about in the intro, it says, God does not lie. And there is background information that the people in Crete believed in this Greek and Roman pantheon of gods. And so they believed that Zeus was the highest god. And one of Zeus's character traits was that he was a liar. So this information isn't totally implicit in the text. It's background information. It's sort of extra to the text. So we cannot add that in. We cannot say, God does not lie like Zeus is a liar. That's adding too much to the text. But that is something that you could teach extra to the text, and that helps to increase people's understanding. So the second guideline is four different conditions under which you can add implicit information. So first condition, if it's essential to communicate the main point of the message. Second condition, if you don't communicate it, then either no meaning or a wrong meaning would be communicated. 
So an example of that is at the introduction of Titus, where Paul says to Titus in verse 4, to Titus, my son in a common faith. So there are cultures where saying my son would imply that he's actually his biological son. And we don't want to imply that. That would be communicating a wrong meaning. So in that case, we could make this implicit information that he's a spiritual son or like a son. We could make that explicit by saying to Titus, my spiritual son. Another condition is if it can be done without distorting the main focus or the theme of the message, there's another place, I believe in Titus, where he talks about greetings from Zenus, the lawyer. And here's one where the translation team I was working with, actually, they said, hey, people in the culture don't really know what a lawyer is. So we ended up with a long explanation of a lawyer. And we started to realize this is taking away from the main focus of the message. Even though people in that culture, the original culture would have known what a lawyer is, and people in this culture might not have as good of information, you just say something really general, something like Zenus who knew the law. You don't really have to explain what a lawyer is because it's not the main focus of the message and it's taking away from the main focus. So the last condition is that it has to be appropriate to the original situation in what in which the message was given. And in all of these, you can evaluate that translation by asking, is this translation accurately communicating what the original author was saying? So that is our translation principle for today. And now let's go ahead and look at our text. I am reading again from the English Standard Version. So here is Titus 2, 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So as we look at this passage, this the main translation issue that we're going to see is all of these lists with closely related words. So the hardest part for the translation team is probably going to be thinking through the meanings of all these different words and deciding how to translate them, especially if there's overlap or just different sort of semantic ranges, areas of meaning within these different words that are different from Greek, different from English, different from French. Every language, their words have a little different range of meaning. So how do we get the original meaning accurately? So let's go back and look again at verse 1. 
It says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So again, pretty self-explanatory. The word sound for sound doctrine actually means healthy. So that's something you could consider as a translation team. Whether that metaphor of, of being healthy doctrine would actually work in your culture. In English, we've used sound doctrine because that gets the idea of what healthy is trying to communicate, that it's right, that it's good. Verse two, then we move to these five groups. There's five different groups of people being addressed here. So verse two says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So the first thing to consider here is who are these older men? Are they the same as the men that we talked about in chapter one? And actually they are not. These older men are any men who are older, whereas in chapter one, they talk specifically about elders or leaders in the church. So leaders in the church need to behave a certain way, but here we're talking about any man, here's how he should behave. So we've got sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into all of those words, but you can consider, and you might consider looking up those different words and saying, what are the differences here? And how? what would be a good way to translate them? I will point out to you that one word that's interesting is the word sober-minded. So this word in the original Greek really does mean not drinking too much. And so interestingly, in English, we have the word sober, which also means not drinking too much, but it also can mean something else. It can have more of a figurative meaning of sort of an attitude that is reflective and that doesn't do things to excess. And that's really the point. So the original readers would have understood that point, that it's not just about drinking, but that it's about in all of life, you need to have an attitude that is not doing things to excess. So in English, we have a word that covers both of those, but you need to think about in the language you're translating into, you want to get the idea of not doing things to excess in all of life, not just specifically drinking. So interestingly, in verse three, when we talk about older women, it says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So for older women, it actually does specifically mention wine. So here's a case where we wouldn't want to change that to say sober-minded for, for these older women. We, we do want to translate faithfully by saying, yes, here it does say that they shouldn't drink too much. They shouldn't be slaves to wine. It also talks about being reverent in behavior. That's sort of like fearing God or doing what God asks us to do not slanderers, to teach what is good. And then we move to verse four. It says, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. I think that's also pretty self-explanatory. Uh, verse five, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So in this verse, we see one of the big translation issues that translators face and that is when you're talking about making implicit information explicit, you do really need to guard against 
trying to make something explicit that's really actually part of your own cultural understanding. So we need to be really careful that, again, that we're making explicit information that's actually in the text and not our own interpretation of the text. So this verse says that young women must work in the home and that they must submit to their husbands. And those are hot button issues in American culture. We don't want to say that women should work in the home. We want to say that women can be called to many different things. They don't necessarily have to be called to working at home. And we don't want to say that women have to submit to their husbands, or at least we want to say, well, what does submission look like? It's more like respect, or we don't want it to lead to abuse, saying a woman has to submit to whatever her husband says, no matter what that is. And if you read commentaries, you'll see that they go into these issues. In fact, the Pillar New Testament commentary says, much ink has been spilled in recent generations debating what wives submit to your husbands does and does not mean. But we are a translation team. We're not a commentary. So we can't make commentary on the text. We have to accurately translate the meaning of the words and then we can rely on the Holy Spirit and we can rely on teaching that will come later. So, of course, after the Bible is translated, when people have the books, we want to teach them. We want to help them increase in understanding and we want to trust the Holy Spirit that he will also be teaching those people. So as a translation team, we need to say, okay, this is literally saying women must work at home. So we're going to translate women must work at home. This is literally saying women must submit to their husbands, which does mean to put yourself under that person's authority. So we are going to use a word that demonstrates a woman must put herself under her husband's authority. And then we will trust that people will be able to learn later, that they will be able to hear from the Holy Spirit later to understand more in depth what these mean. So now we come to verse 6 which says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So I don't know if you have noticed this, but every single group that Paul has addressed has been told to be self-controlled. So this is a key word that you're really going to want to focus on in the passage. What does it mean to be self-controlled? So if you look at the Greek word, it's sophroneo, and it means to be of sound mind, be temperate, to exercise self-control, uh, to to be moderate, as in you're, you're moderating what you do or regulating what you do, keep it properly controlled. So you want to get those ideas, someone who's, who's moderating and regulating their behavior and actions. So then in verse 7, it says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, verse 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So here, interestingly, when Paul addresses young men, he specifically addresses Titus and tells him to be as a teacher and as a leader, to have integrity, to have dignity. So kind of showing respect for yourself in the way that you comport yourself. And then it says so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So all of this behavior, the reason behind it is so that people can't come against, people can't use your behavior as a reason not to believe the gospel. 
Then verse 9 addresses that fifth group of people, which is servants. So it says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So we have this similar idea that, that these servants need to behave well in order to please their masters, but in, also in order to, it says, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So this word adorn is really interesting because it is a word that means to make beautiful, to make compellingly attractive or very appealing. Interestingly, it's also related to the word cosmos for the world or the universe. So that's an interesting connection that we don't have time to get into right now, but something you could study on your own. But for here, what's interesting is that it's saying that our obedience beautifies or makes attractive the word of God. So that's a little bit metaphorical, but you might want to think as you're translating, is there a word that can show that our obedience makes God's word attractive. It adorns or makes attractive the word of God. So that brings us to the end of this passage. And I hope that it has helped you to look at these different translation issues, specifically considering when you have lots of lists of words like this, how can you think through what the differences are and how to make how to translate those words well. Also help you to consider how do you put aside your own cultural assumptions and translate accurately. Even if you would rather teach the theology behind it, how do you translate accurately? And then also, how do you choose, I hope this has helped you to think about, how you choose what information you should make explicit, what you should outright state, and what might be adding a little bit too much. So thank you so much for joining us. Next time we will go on in, in Titus and we will look at chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. So I hope you'll join us again next time for Building a Bridge to God's Word.